Please humble our hearts as we come before your throne in worship. God, we are sinners and you are perfect. We are so thankful that you are just and a faithful ruler. We understand that our sin put Jesus on the cross and it was his blood that was spilt for our transgressions. We know you are just and faithful, so we are thankful for grace and the mercy that you give to us. God, we bring before you the mission organizations and missionaries around the world that we support. We are thankful for the opportunity that our pastors and wives were able to serve the kingdom alongside our partners in Central Asia. We are thankful that they were able to teach, preach, and share the good news of Jesus and encourage the saints that were working tirelessly in that area that don't know you. We pray for the church in Poland. We are thankful for the work being done there. Pray that our missionaries be filled with the Spirit and that they be encouraged and strengthened. Grant them safety and courage as they proclaim the good news of Jesus. I also pray for the ministries that are, we are involved in locally. We ask that our communities might turn their, from their sins and torn, turn towards Christ. Help us reach out and share the gospel to the people whom you have put in our lives. I pray the funds we raise at our church will help the organization of Reach Global to care for Ukrainian refugees and also those displaced by Hurricane Ian. I also pray that the funds have impact to the families that attend the Garden Christian Academy in Cleveland. God, please soften our hearts as we receive God's word. Please let us be found like the Thessalonians, standing firm against the culture of today. We pray that you would give us wisdom and strength to live the lives you ask us to. Give us opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. Pray that we might be light in this dark world. We ask for your blessing upon those in our congregation who are struggling with illness, recovering from surgery, or enduring treatments. We ask that you draw them close and give them peace. We ask that your name might be glorified in their trials. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Please stand, and if you are able, in reading of God's word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranked before me, because he was before me. For from the, his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 12, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast against you in churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy, worthy of the kingdom, 
for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to grant relief to, the, to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fires, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in, in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Words of our Lord. very much, CJ and Johnny and Sarah and Isaiah, and we know Allison and Aubrey could not be here today, but we thank God for your family. Yes, good, everyone may be seated, good. Well, you can't really read one headline or watch you know, one bit of news or any program or even watch any kind of film without having a sense of the way things ought to be. You see how often we're observers of culture, every one of us, and you get engaged in whatever kind of thing you're engaged with, and you feel, you, you know, at some point you smuggle in a should. And that every time we think in terms of ought or should, you're really in the realm of morality. That there is a right and a wrong, and deep down we could say that the world is not in balance that from almost any cultural standpoint, we, I mean, we do focus a lot on the great differences among people these days, the deep divides, but if you really think about it, when it comes to matters of common law, there's wide agreement on the kind of world that we would want. And so we have an ought and a should. And now I happen to think that any time that we go here, which every person does, you're actually smuggling in a bit of God. Uh, because if you think about it, if we're just here as a matter of chance and all there is is stuff, it's really hard to get from the is to the ought. There's a famous uh, problem called the naturalistic fallacy, the is-ought problem. You can't just have stuff and then get to morality. But if morality is deep down inside us, this ought and this should, we look for a real standard for judgment. And the bigger question is, who's going to make it all right? You know, I think even in the matters of our own justice system, think America globally would have a good justice system. And even at that, think of the reports, uh, well, the, the fact of, of unreported crime. It's staggering the millions and millions of cases of heinous things that probably go unreported, like child abuse, for example. What is not unreported, say we also have this category of unsolved, that even this week, we last couple of weeks, we saw what happened in, in Moscow, Idaho, a very terrifying set of four murders. You say not a single suspect with all the great minds in the interviews. You say there's a lot of unsolved problems. What about those who are falsely accused? 
And even in Cuyahoga County, you'll be reading Cleveland.com and say, well, here's some chap that spent all these years in prison. You know, he didn't deserve to be there because he's been vindicated on these DNA tests. Or others, we'd say, well, they've been given too harsh a penalty. Or still others, a too lenient penalty. That We look out at the world, say, things are not as they ought to be. There's a great imbalance. Who's going to make it all right? Will there be a reckoning? And in today's passage, you'll see there will be a reckoning. And for those of us who are Christians, we know who's going to deliver the reckoning. And it's up to us, right, as we live out our gospel, to point as many as we can to the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus will return and make all things right. Now, some would say, in 2,000 years, has there ever been one church who's done Second Thessalonians at Advent? Yes, I'm sure we're not the first. You say, well, how do you do Second Thessalonians at Advent? If you think about it, Pastor Ian, very helpful this week on, on this point. How many Christmas hymns connect the the first coming, which is what Advent is, it's a word for for coming or arrival, with the second coming of Jesus? That we're very good at making a kind of schizophrenic Jesus, right? We say, well, is the baby in the manger the king of kings? You say, that's one and the same, right? The baby who came to us in God's grace and mercy, who's right there, say, wow, look at what a tender baby, I mean, so vulnerable, comes to us to make us right with God, is the same Jesus who's going to come with a flaming fire to inflict vengeance. The same figure. So Christmas time, the first coming, and the anticipation of the second coming really frames the mission of the church, that grace and truth of John's gospel. Isn't it wonderful how we have that line? Grace and truth, they seem to be in tension. Do I want to be lenient and merciful? I do, but there's also matters of truth and law. And in Jesus, those intersect perfectly. Grace and truth. The manger, the first coming, and his second coming with authority and power to make all things right. Of course, he's initiated that in the first coming. Those of us who are his, the the elect, that we know what it's like to have Jesus as king, that we've experienced uh, elements of his kingdom, that the church is an embassy of heaven. But we also anticipate, as these letters have dictated, Christ coming again to make all things right. So just two points today. We'll look at uh, why, you know, really the context of why Paul's writing this, and then secondly, you know, the, the glory, really the glory of the gospel. So first notice that their world, like our world, is imbalanced. So Second Thessalonians, written right on the heels probably of First Thessalonians, some would say even within months, probably written to once again correct false views or false teachings on the end. So the thrust will be next week in chapter 2, that they had misunderstood what Paul was saying about Uh, coming in the end. And you'll notice that their faith, verse 3, their faith is growing abundantly still, and their love for one another is also increasing. We talked about faith, hope, and love, that these things are really growing in the Thessalonian church, so much so that they've remained a model to all the other churches. Verse 4, just like in 1 Thessalonians 1-7, they become a kind of template to say, you want to be like this church. Look at how they're growing. However, the matter of persecution and affliction, verse 4, maybe has been stepped up, that it's become even harder to be a Christian in Thessalonica, which I think is what's meant in verse 5. I find this very interesting. Take a look again, 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Say, what is he t- what's the evidence? The evidence of the just judgment of God seems to be that, well, on the one hand, that these Thessalonians Uh, have clung to their faith despite all odds. You ever think about it that way? What incentive did this little group of Christians in Greece 
have to believe in Jesus. There were absolutely no social points to be a Christian. That Paul had only preached there for a very short time, maybe a month. And I think at one level we're to see this as because they really believed, because God really did a work in them, because they really were converted. And as a result of that, that this message of becoming Christ followers immediately attracts opposition. That when we surrender to Jesus and say he's the the way to be right with God, he's the only way to be right with God, that the natural world and our natural selves has a kind of revulsion to this because it makes a claim on our pride. And so it's as if Paul's saying, you know, you are being afflicted. Most of us think, well, if life's hard, God must not be in it. Am I doing something wrong? It's just the opposite. He says, actually, this is the evidence that it's all true. That you've believed, despite the odds, that naturally this kind of message is an offense to our pride. And as a result, they're afflicted and in this sense that there is a moral economy, that they are, uh, they're suffering and they know that this is wrong and they long for something to be, be put right. That's the context of the, of the letter. Say, Lord, have you forgotten us? Or are you going to make it right? Now, what about our world? You say it is becoming harder and harder, I think, to become or to maintain our faith in the marketplace and even the kind of church with biblical convictions like ours, you say that line is a lot more uncomfortable to hold even than it was 15 years ago, that it's hard to be a Christian. And yet we cling to our faith and say that's not a sign that something's wrong, but it's a sign really that we, we, we believe in Jesus sincerely. But beyond that, you think I just tried to think the last two weeks of the major headlines. You say, what about the I already mentioned the ghastly murders in Moscow, Idaho. You've got the whole situation in Colorado Springs with traditional family values kind of at the center of all that. You've got the shadowy world of cryptocurrency that I don't know much about. Pastor Denny would know more about that than I do, but I don't understand. But there's big fallout in cryptocurrencies, political misdirection, frequent scandals, all kinds of societies globally that are, that are highly more unjust than ours. So the world's out of balance. And we say, who's going to make it right? You got an answer for that. 2 Thessalonians 1 to the non-Christian answers, I think, in a surprising way. That God is going to put everything right when Jesus comes again. The Lord Jesus, right, this is verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted, so to deliver affliction upon those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicting, we could say, justice on those who do not know God. You say, there's, there's the solution. That God's going to make the entire moral economy correct when Jesus comes again, all the wrongs will be made right, and all those who are right will be vindicated, that there'll be a perfect settling of the scales, and inside of us, each one of us, when we have that notion of should or ought, will be met in Christ. Now, just how staggering this is, you think that the Hebrew prophets, writing hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was in the manger, so for example, Isaiah would be a great book to look at, the prophets predicted the coming of a king. They say, we're going we're gonna to have a king one day. He's going to come. He's going to make all things right. So Isaiah chapter 11 uh, talks about this 
shoot from the stump of Jesse, that is the offspring of Jesse. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. In other words, you say, we're anticipating this coming king, and this king is going to be the perfect, righteous judge of all, and set all things right. Now, here's where I say some, something I find odd, is that when people will say to me, well, does Jesus really claim to be God? If you've ever heard that, I say, well, we know Jesus is a nice chap. He's a poor Galilean carpenter. You know, he's a, you know, uh, fighting for, for rights of the poor, say, but does he really claim to be God? And I want to say just, you've got you've to read the Bible. So in John chapter 5, think about this. What other person in the assembly or another person in your life could say something like this? You know, the Father is not going to judge anyone, but he's entrusted all judgment to me. Jesus claims to judge the hearts and minds of every person who's ever lived. And so that word Christ that we apply to Jesus is the same word as Messiah. It's the Greek for Messiah is the Hebrew and Christ is the Greek. And we call Jesus, right? It's not that Jesus' last name was Christ, but we're saying Jesus is, the Christ. Jesus is this long-anticipated king in whom the Hebrew prophets saw all justice to rest. That this is picked up in the New Testament writers and here made very plain. You say all this affliction of Christians, all the mess that has been made of God's creation, all the poor stewardship and the plundering, all of that is going to be put right in the person of Jesus. And that ought and that should that is in each one of our hearts will be satisfied at the coming of the rightful king, the one perfect man. Now, we get to this point in our passage, which is we go through the Bible, right? We get to the point in the passage, we come to a topic that is neither joyful nor something that I particularly like talking about, but it is crucial that we talk about it. It is one of seriousness and sorrowness, sorrow, uh, sorrow, and it's something that Jesus talked about a lot, and that is the nature of where we go when we don't come to God on his terms, that we have a place for this, right? When Jesus comes again and he settles the score, those who inflict pain on God's people, those who've made a mess of creation without coming to God, they will suffer the punishment, you see verse 9, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now we have a name for that place, don't we? Say, this is hell. Now a lot of us, you say, maybe you grew up in a church and the pastor just didn't talk about hell because it's a, you know, a scary thing and it doesn't sell well and you know, it, what, the implications of this are, are very serious indeed. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are people who sit under God's word. It's a plain teaching of Jesus and a plain teaching of the Bible. The world's out of balance. We all know it's out of balance. It's going to be put right in Jesus and there are consequences for ignoring what he's done in Jesus. So let's kind of walk through this and what we can detect from here and elsewhere. But who is hell for, right? Verse nine, who is hell for? Hell is for people who do not come to God on his terms, that they deliberately ignore the fact that they are made and created, 
that many in our context, you say this is where it's very bad to be in America because there is a church on every corner. So all these crosses that we see up, that all the fact that it's in our cultural history, to say even less uh, reason to believe, that is that we are even uh, more so without an excuse. So it is for those who deliberately do not want to come to God on his terms. So I don't like the phrase, this is the way it'll come up. So, well, how do you believe in a God who sends people to hell. I say, wait a second, time out. I think hell is the destination of those who hate God. And so if you're telling me you don't believe in God, then you don't believe that there's anything such as the presence of God or the goodness of God, and you certainly don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, why would you want to be in the fellowship of such a being? You don't even believe that being. So all we're saying is that there is such a place for those who say, uh, I will not come to God in his terms. I have ignored what he's done in Jesus. Naturally, right, choices lead us on paths and paths lead us to destinations. That's just the way it is. So as we harden our hearts against God, we will end up in the place uh, that is, by very definition, a, a godless place without the presence of God. So who's hell for? Those who ignore their maker. Those who, in their pride, will not come to God on his terms, recognizing this moral economy that I've been talking about and not be reconciled to him through the death of his son. So hell is not a place God randomly sends people. It's the natural destination of those who defy their maker. It's exactly the definition of hell. So you could say there's not going to be a person in hell who doesn't want to be there. Um, that as we turn from God and we do what we want and our heart is hardened, then that's the place we go. Now what's hell like? Here's one where you have to be really careful because there's a lot of really good medieval art both writing and art that help, you know, clouds the matter. It's really good to, 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 to enjoy it. Art is a great gift. We can really harness art to the good. But what's hell like? So Mark Twain, uh, this is a common misconception. He said, well, I choose heaven for the climate, hell for the companionship. Right? You ever hear people joke? They say, well, I don't want to go to heaven because all my buddies are in hell. Billy Joel, I like some of his music. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because the sinners are much more fun. It's not like that. Hell's a terrible place. It's not a place of merrymaking with your buddies and watching sports. Then I don't think it's a torture chamber, again, thinking of something like Hieronymus Bosch or even you know, Dante's, I don't think it's a torture chamber biblically, but what it is biblically is a place of selfishness, of darkness, of emotional distress, physical hardship, bitterness, and sorrow. You know, just as a thought experiment, think of it this way. Um, talking this week, Denny had made reference to just the last 24 hours, I've been getting a lot of texts of how many in our church family seem to have influenza A or some kind of virus. They're just, they're, they're down, you know? And when you're down and you're ill, think of your world, it's kind of, it's bleak. You don't want to do anything. You're not motivated, you know? It's just, a, it's, it's a terrible, say, what if hell's like that? Just a terrible place of depression and darkness. Say, well, how could it be like that? I think that also comes in verse nine. Look, right, those who mistreat God's creation, mistreat his people, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Do you see that line there? That's a very important line, away from the presence of the Lord. Every good thing that we experience, every delight that we have, 
Every properly functioning system is that way because of God's kind grace, that he allows it to be that way. So if you think of hell not so much as God injecting evil, but actually as him pulling himself back. Can you see that? It's a way of God saying, okay, if, if, you, if you don't want me, if you hate me and you don't accept the gracious offer of Jesus, you really don't want me in your life, okay. And he takes a step back. You see, hell is the absence of God. It's not that there's too much God injecting. It's, it's actually just the opposite. All the goodness that God gives each one of us, he takes his hands off. To use this example of privation, say yesterday we got our Christmas tree. I tried to hold the boys off till uh, December 1st, but yesterday I caved, outvoted three to one. So off we go, we got the tree, you know, the little tags on it. I glance at the tag, telling me about what kind of water to put in it. So you think about that. Say, what would happen if I just, we just didn't water our tree? The tree would shrivel up and die and it looked very nasty. See, I have not actively poisoned my tree. I didn't inject any evil into the tree. All I did was say, I'm gonna withhold anything good that it needs. So hell is not God saying, well, now all of a sudden I'm going to do these nasty things to these people down there. No, what he's saying is, okay, you, you don't want me. You don't recognize me. You got it. And it's absent his presence. Hell's not a fun place. It's a terrible place. Whatever your worst day here is, you can remember, think of your worst day. That might be your best day there. That's the picture we get. Why is that? Again, because God is not there. Why is that the case? Well, because it's the absence of God's presence for those who in this life have wanted precisely that. Now, that said, another objection, they say, well, wait a second here. You telling me that guy, you know, that nice chap who lives next door to me in North Ridgeville, who just, you know, he's an atheist, but he's a really good guy. Are you telling me he's down there with Hitler? Say, actually, I think, biblically speaking, there are degrees of rewards in heaven and punishments in hell. That take, for example, Luke chapter 12 and verse 47, where Jesus is talking about this uh, in, in a parable. And he says, you know, there are servants who are going to be beaten with many blows and some with few blows. That I think that there are degrees, it's, it's terrible for everyone, but there are degrees of punishments in hell as there are rewards in heaven. Now, please don't misunderstand me, because inevitably when you talk about rewards and degrees of punishments... People say, well, here's Shaw. Is he smuggling in a works-oriented salvation? No, we are not saved by works. There's nothing we can do to climb our way up to God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It's all of God and Jesus. It's of him and none of us. He's put forth Jesus. He's given us faith. He's given us the gift of repentance. However, once we're converted, to recognize that all the things that you do to advance the name of Jesus, all the things that are lost, and every person in this room, say you're never going to be recognized by even your church family, say that's not lost on God. And friends, I will say, I think it's okay. The way God made us, it's okay to be motivated by rewards in heaven. In the same way, on the reverse side of it, there are degrees, there are degrees of punishments in hell. Terrible for everyone, but... Um, that seems to be the case. Now, here, next objection, I think. Say, so, well, does God enjoy this? I mean, you know, a lot of people picture him up there. So is he just delighting in this, you know, casting this person? Is he, is he delighting? And say, no, God does not delight in anyone going to hell. That hell was a created domain for the devil and his angels. 
We're told in Ezekiel 33:11, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Say, God would wish everyone here, say, you're not a Christian today. What does God want? He wants you to come to him on his terms through Jesus, to recognize this moral economy, to repent and to come to him. And there's an open invitation to you today to turn. That's what he wants. But the practical implication for this, say, as God does not enjoy people, his creatures whom he loves going to hell, neither should we. Now, there are a lot of people causing a lot of grief for Christians, the same as in Thessalonica. There have always been people making the Christian life difficult. There's a lot of people who are destroying our society, the fabric of our society. We are not happy about that. We do not delight and they're not coming to God on his terms. That our job is to love them and to proclaim what is done in Jesus. And so here's Spurgeon, again, I'm indebted to Pastor Ian for this quote, Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. I have to ask myself, is that my posture towards my non-believing neighbors? All the politicians I don't like say, I, I need to be more postured like Spurgeon to say, Lord, may it not be so, because hell is a terrible place. And we want everyone, as many as possible in the short time we have, to turn to God's gracious terms in Jesus, to see the baby in the manger this holiday. It's everywhere. You go to Crocker Park and they're singing, Hark the Heralds, a turn, turn. We're without excuse. God's not sadistic. Hebrews 11:6. he rewards those who seek him. All right, next idea here. Take a look again, verse 9. Is hell really eternal? Say again, a lot of funny ideas from the culture. Well, hell's temporary, you know, is it, maybe it's like annihilationism, you know, you're just kind of wiped out. Uh, good people go to heaven, bad people, they're just wiped out. It becomes like more, before you're born. No, I think here, this verse 9, right, that says that you're without God eternally. It's a place of being without God eternally. And there are no knockdown arguments, but, uh, you know, if you have a read of something like Matthew 25 and verse 46... Jesus, again, this is in the context of the last judgment. Then Jesus will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Can you see how those two are paralleled? Eternal death and eternal life are paralleled. So it is a little bit, again, surprising. You'll survey professing Christians. This happens over and over and over again. You'll, you'll survey, say, I'm a Christian. Do you believe in heaven? You say, 95%, definitely. Going to be great, you know, definitely. Have, do you believe in hell? No, don't like that. Big disparity between professing Christians on whether there's heaven and whether there's hell. Say, no, there, there's eternal life and eternal death. And taught plainly and, and multiple times. So it's appointed to a man once to die, and then comes judgment, that there aren't second chances, there is no purgatory, that we've been given enough here that we are without excuse. Which brings us to the last question, maybe a last objection about verse 9. Why is there an eternal consequence for temporal transgression? You can say, well, you know, I've known some bad 
bad people in my time, but I mean, 85 years of damage. I mean, why would you get an eternal punishment for only doing, you know, you know, even a few, you know, a few decades of being a really bad dude? Why, why is it eternal? I think the answer to this is because the offense is infinite. That just like in any legal system, there are degrees of offenses. You say, when we defy our maker, when we fail on the most basic front to recognize that we're creatures, that we have been made, that we're accountable to people beyond ourselves, to the ultimate being, when we fail at that most fundamental level, it is an infinite offense. Could you imagine God, and I'm sorry, to, you know, this is, this is mean of me to say, so, but could you imagine God, so, so if my four-year-old puts together 10 Legos in any shape. It doesn't even have to be a shape. If he just hooks 10 Legos together and I walk into the living room, I know that those Legos didn't spontaneously blow into that shape. And now here's God who said, I've given all of you bodies, infinitely more complex than 10 blocks. I've given you all the gift of language. I've given you the natural world. And yet, in our pride and our blindness, we fail to come to God on his terms. Why? Because, again, we love ourselves. That's why there's an eternal consequence for temporal transgression, because we deny the most fundamental things about our very nature. So, friends, again, it's not a happy topic, but it is a true topic. The ought and the should deep inside each one of us that we see on every headline and every program that points us to a real just judge who will come again and make all things right. There is an ultimate reckoning for those who don't come to God. We call that place hell. It's a terrible place. It's an eternal place. People who are there, that's exactly where they want to be because they don't want to know God. That They love themselves more than they've come to God. Now, how about some good news uh, here now, okay? <laughs> Christmas time. There's a little word there. A wonderful little word in verse 8. Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the, you see that? The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word gospel, you know what it is? It's, it's, a good, it's, good, it's a good news. It's in the old days, the herald on the street. Hey, there's really good news, right? Come, come, there's great news. What is the good news? The good news is that God put forth Jesus so that all who trust in him can be put right with him, recognizing this moral economy that we don't come to God on our own, but through the blood of Jesus. Now, this whole matter of judgment and justice forces the next question, and this is where you just, just ask yourself this question. Given this matter of affliction and the should and the ought, that question of should, ought, and the moral economy, am I a good person or a bad person? Now, we may say that's a, that's a relative question. I'm a really good person compared to the tyrants of history. I'm not such a good person compared to the pastor's wives. You see? That all of us have to reckon, where are we at? And of course, the standard is not other people. Say, so what if the standard of right and wrong is the personhood of God? and the perfect man, Jesus. Say, that's the standard. And if I accept him as the standard, I'm in trouble. Like that old little, you know, like that old little story, which I think is very powerful, say, if we're all standing on the, you know, 
the Atlantic shore and we're trying to swim over to England, like sure there are going to be better swimmers than others. You know, some will make it out, some will make it very far at all. But guess what? We're all going down. We've all fallen short, right? Romans 3.23 of the glory of God. That's what that means. This is called the conviction of sin. It's the beginning point of coming to a savior to say, you know what? I'm not, I'm not such a great person. You know, on college campuses, I know here, I, you, you can bat a thousand with this. I learned it from Francis Schaeffer. You say, you go up to the college, ah, I don't know about this God stuff, and you just ask him this question. You say, well, what if every thought that you thought this last week, just one week, was on a film for everyone to see? Would you like that? No. What if your whole life was a movie and just anybody could watch any bit of it? Your whole life, just everything you, you, know, everything you thought, everything you said, everything you did, just, just put it out there. Would you like that? I say, no. What does that tell you? I'm aware of a moral standard. I've fallen short of that moral standard. And I'm embarrassed about that. And I don't want people to know me like I know myself. If you admit that, you ought to be very close to becoming a Christian. You're aware of a moral standard. It's deep down within you. You know you've fallen short, and you're embarrassed about it. And if there's a God, guess what? He doesn't know you like the other people in the room know you. He knows you how you know you. You need a Savior, and there's really good news. God sent Jesus. And all of you, by virtue, I know some visiting today, you got drug here because you're in town for Thanksgiving, and you're like, oh my goodness, this guy's talking about some serious stuff. That, yeah, the, yeah, the Bible's serious. And by being here, you're hearing this, right? You come to Jesus. You turn your life to him. He give you a new heart. You live for him as long as you have. So friends, we end with the prayer where Paul does in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that'll be our prayer for 2023, right? That the name of Jesus might be glorified in our midst. So as we go through this world, say we don't send anyone to hell. We don't even take a guess at who's in heaven and who's hell. That is not our job. Our job is to obey, once again, verse 8, right? To obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, to humble the sinner, to exalt the Savior, and that as we do that, we do pray that non-believers would come and not say, well, look at those people. They're very clever and put together over there at Providence Church, but the prayer that by God's Spirit, they say, wow, Jesus must be really great. Jesus must be a fantastic savior. Look at what he's done in the life of those people, those one-time selfish people who did life on their own terms. Look at how he's turned them around. There must be real power in the gospel. I want to be a Christian too. That's the aim of our church. So friends, God will enact a just judgment. Take comfort in that. In the meantime, let's promote what God has done in Jesus to the best of our ability, to live for him, to obey his gospel, to delight in this glorious season that he came for us in the major, and that same Jesus will come again to judge with authority and power. I must pray now, and then we'll sing. Lord, this is a hard teaching today, as we all know people that we very much love who just, just won't come to your son. And Father, help us to not just ignore this, because it's, it's a lot of places in your word. So help us to... Um, 
May this encourage our evangelism, really. May it encourage our faithful walk with you. And so, Lord, may you have your way. May this prayer at the end of chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians be our prayer, that may the name of Jesus be glorified in our midst, that somehow, some way, that we think this must be a miracle if anybody sees Providence Church and says, well, isn't Jesus great? That's a work of you, Lord, by what you've done in us. So help us to live that way.